This episode is presented by Wild Dunes Resort, a resort unlike any other. Wild Dunes offers something for everyone. Award-winning golf, tennis, pickleball, and sparkling pools, delicious on-site dining, and memorable outdoor adventures. Located just outside Charleston in beautiful Isle of Palms, South Carolina, Wild Dunes offers 36 holes of signature golf designed by Tom Fazio. The Lynx course was Fazio's first solo design and is still among his favorites today. From the rustling palms lining the rolling fairways to a finishing hole overlooking the glistening Atlantic, the Lynx course is South Carolina golf at its finest. The Harbor Course, another of Fazio's gems known for its challenging design, beautiful views, and most of all, water. From lagoons and salt marshes to the intracoastal waterway, this course will test all aspects of your game. Whether it's an afternoon golf outing or a week-long excursion, you will enjoy every minute of your golf vacation at Wild Dunes Resort. Learn more about Wild Dunes at wilddunes.com. Welcome back to the Lynx Golf Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Al Lunsford, joined by Joe Passoff. And we are excited to welcome David McClay Kidd, golf course architect, with us today to have a nice chat. David, how are you doing today? I'm doing really, really well. I'm, I'm uh, in my office, which is a very rare thing. Uh, and my business partner, Nick Sean, is here, which is even rarer for us both to be in the same spot at the same time, and it's still not the dead of winter. So it's a rare thing. And I think we're only here today, and then we both sort of disappear in other directions, uh, along with everybody else in the coming days. A busy lot that you are. I know a lot of people know your name, obviously, and we were just talking right before we hit the record button. David McClay Kid golf design is not just David McClay kid. Uh, in fact, you are expanding your office as we speak. So, um, what, how many people you got working with you right now? And, um, it seems like you're taking, a your mindset has shifted. You're a mentor now. And, and, uh, what's, what's it like running? That's all to say. Yeah. I'm a, 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 what's the opposite of a mentor? Is it a mentoree? Uh, I'm more mentor than mentoree. That also means I'm getting old. Uh, yeah, I think that that's probably true. I'm closer to 60 than 50. Uh, we have more than a dozen people uh, who are uh, full-time on our payroll. Uh, we probably got at least twice that that are in our orbit that work with us on a regular basis. Uh, I, I kind of, I remember back to early in my career listening to Pete Dye talk about uh, the energy in his team was fueled by these young guys that were coming in, you know, very enthusiastic about golf and golf design and the game of golf and the history of golf and the landscape. And and now here I am 30 years on, the recipient of that very energy. Uh, we have a bunch of guys in our team who are uh, really low handicaps. I mean, uh, to be low in our team right now, you, your handicap has to start with a plus sign. Uh, so we got a number of really good golfers. My eight handicap, I don't make the B team anymore. Uh, so we have some really good golfers. They will be a path to any golf course of note that's anywhere near their uh, travel takes them. Uh, and they're super pumped about bringing those ideas to the table and morphing them into whatever we're working on. And I find that reinvigors my own passion uh, to rediscover things and try things that are new and and see the world of golf design through the eyes of the next generation as they come in. And I think that that is probably the only way I survive, right, is uh working with that enthusiastic youth and fueled by it and fueling them uh, create, you know, a, another hopefully 20 years of productive career. I can't imagine me ever retiring voluntarily. So I probably have to fall into a bunker uh, and get filled in for me to give up. That's got to be really refreshing having all of these bright eyed and bushy tailed people uh, joining you on this journey and it's it takes a village given the amount of current projects you have and what you've already accomplished i'm quite sure we'll get into that uh but what is the what does the inner office golf match look like for you guys what are, what is the game you're playing um rider cup format what are we talking here uh you know normally it's like for a dollar 
uh, and often <laughs> it's like nears the pin and it's often not some 18 hole match with golf shoes on shiny faced uh, you know eight o'clock on a Saturday morning because we're busy we're working so very often it's a few holes snatched at the end of the day uh, with a signed dollar bill on the line uh, and that dollar bill carries a lot of pride and a lot of shame if you're the one handing it over uh, and you know some of these guys are really really good I mean I I, I basically have to use my Scottish uh, harsh tongue to see if I can talk them out of a good shot uh, but sometimes it feels like the damn golf holes like magnetic uh, and their golf balls the other end of it and uh, they're calling these crazy shots and hitting them uh, you know, Nick is a plus two and he got his butt whooped the other night at Gamble Sands uh, by a new guy on our crew, Tommy. Uh, so when Nick is a plus two, gets his butt kicked, you know that these guys have got game. I'm sure. Well, it sounds yeah. like, yeah, it sounds like you, you at least, David, have gamesmanship. And gamesmanship. that has to. Yeah. Yes, that, I, that has to. I'm writing everyone's paycheck. So I, <laughs> I, I like to remind them of that when they're hovering over a four footer. Perfect incentive. Yeah. David, um, so Nick Sean has been your longtime partner in crime. How wow. do you two divide the work, so to speak? How do you work together? And then how do you work apart? Great question. You know, Nick joined me in 06, pretty much straight out of college. He'd worked at Chambers Bay. He worked for John Harbottle for a while. Uh, and he joined me as a fresh-faced newbie at like 26 years old in 2006, and he's now 42. Uh, you know, we we don't. I don't know that we divide and conquer so much as collaborate. Uh, you know, I'm pretty good at the big picture overview, dreaming up some idea of scope, identity, direction. Uh, Nick is really good at getting in the weeds and figuring out how sometimes my big idea actually occurs. A great example, the very first project we did together was Huntsman Springs, now called Tributary. And I had this big, bold idea of creating 50 plus acres of wetland through a meadow uh, near Jackson Hole. <clears throat> very complex project to pull off. And I had the bones of an idea and Nick got down in the weeds and figured out how to actually make it all technically work. And we've kind of been doing that ever since. Uh, and Nick's always been frustrated a little bit that the more complex the project, the more he's been involved, the less complex the project, the more I've been involved. <clears throat> so if it's Gamble Sands or Grey Bull uh, or Macrahanish Dunes, you know, I'm in the thick of it, waving my arms because there's nothing very technical to do. If it's Huntsman Springs tributary or or Rolling Hills or some other project that's really complicated, he's had more of the lead involvement. And so this year in particular, we decided to turn that on its head. Uh, and uh, I was basically on the ground all the last two summers at Graybull in Nebraska, and Nick has been on the ground at the second course at Gamble Sands uh, by design. And so he's probably having his first project of his career where he's on the ground all the time on a project that's not technical. You know, he's not figuring out engineering problems and moving a bunch of dirt. He's in a, in a sand pit shaping he's got five shapers on the ground on one project which is extreme by most standards so if this thing doesn't come out awesome then i'm going to point at the first course and say see i did that with only two <laughs> well you said uh nick was 26 when he joined you um and you were 27 when you first set foot uh on the property abandoned dunes which is what a lot of people know you well for uh, as they should. It's one of the best courses in the country and now one of the best, if not the best, probably is the best golf resort in the country, potentially the world. Uh, how did you get there in 27 years? How did you go from Scotland to Bandon Dunes? I know there's a lot in there, but 
Oh, it was July of 94 was the first time. Uh, and, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about how that ended up happening. Uh, you know, if, uh, like many things, it was a bunch of happenstance that all came together at just the right moment. You know, some of it was, uh, you know, being in the right place at the right time with the right background and skill set-ish. And some of it pure dumb luck. Uh, and life, you know, your breaks come from some measure of all of that. Uh, the parts that were playing to my advantage, you know, Mike Kaiser obviously was very passionate about golf in Scotland and felt that he couldn't experience that in the United States anywhere. You know, he played Royal Dornoch and got told that was a Lynx course and then went to Pebble Beach and got told that was a Lynx course. And of course, those of us that know, know that we're both great, but not the same. Uh, little comparison there. So he was desperate to find a way of building an authentic Lynx course in America. And part of that mission for him was to bring that Scottish expertise to the USA, which had happened 100 years ago, but not in living memory. So he was inclined to find someone that had that in their DNA, but there aren't any Scottish golf course designers, at least not 25, 30 years ago. Uh, but some really, really good Scottish superintendents, greenkeepers as they call them. And one of them, Jimmy Kidd, was in charge at Glen Eagles in Scotland. And he was probably the most vocal, uh, well-known golf course superintendent at that time. Uh, and that's my father. So uh, my father and Mike became friends. They're exactly the same age. I mean, to the day, born the same day, same year uh, in 1945. Uh, and so they became fast friends. And although my father wasn't uh, a trained designer, his son was. I had studied that in college and, you know, the apple hadn't fallen far from the tree. And so uh, Mike, you know, gave my father and I the chance to see the, the property before anything was done. And I was drawing up plans in the little Sea Star guest house and presenting them to Mike in 1994, the course didn't open till 99. And in amongst all of the people that Mike was talking to, I think he felt that I, uh, as my father's son, had the best chance to not screw up. I mean, it didn't mean I was the most talented designer at that point. The land was so good, I'm not sure it required a whole hell of a lot of design. It required someone who had restraint, who wasn't sullied by a the sort of overreach of American golf course architecture, the massive dirt moves, the fake water features, cart paths, you know, all of the, the stuff that had been added to golf post-World War II that had taken golf far from its roots when it found the U.S. in the late 18, early 1900s. And so I think Mike intuitively knew that I didn't have that baggage. I, I wasn't conscious or aware of it. And so by allowing me to paint out the golf course on a really, really good piece of land, I didn't actually have the skill set to screw it up. You know, it wasn't like I was restraining my desire to build ponds, which Tom Fazio undoubtedly would have done. I didn't I didn't have that in my my arsenal anyway. So I, I couldn't have done it. I wouldn't have done it. Uh, so I'm going to say that, you know, Mike hired the simplest person he could that was rooted in Scottish golf and that happened to be me thank goodness well I remember listening to you talking about uh some of the things you told Mike um in kind of your your pitch and what you wanted Bandon to be and of course now their slogan is golf as it was meant to be and, and what did that mean to you what were some of the things you told him and I think he came back to you and said did you really mean all that when you said it and yeah, what were some of the, in July of 94, I spent a week on the property with my father uh, and wandered across the land with Shorty Dow, who's since passed, and realized that this was an amazing piece of property, that it was very remote by American standards. It was about as remote as you could get. And that Mike Kaiser really wasn't on anyone's radar. He was a you know, a wealthy golf nut from Chicago that wasn't in the golf business even remotely, although he did own a nine-hole private golf course. He wasn't really in the golf business. Uh, but he was wealthy enough to hire whomever he wanted. 
and he owned this 1600 acres you know a mile over a mile and a half of coastline at that time uh so part of me i guess i was conflicted part of me was super excited about the opportunity but as a scotsman pessimism is burnt into our dna early so the other part of me knew that i was never going to get hired right he was not going to hire this 26 year old actually at the time he, he wasn't going to hire me uh and so i felt emboldened to kind of tell him what I truly believed so that I could walk away with my head held high. So I painted out a scenario to Mike that I knew to be true. And that scenario was, you know, golf from the old country was a very simple game. It didn't have golf carts. It didn't have fancy clubhouses right on the beach. I mean, can you think of a single golf course in Scotland uh, that has a golf course, a clubhouse on the beach? Don't say the castle course, because that was me and I did put it on the beach. But <laughs> almost any other, they're not there. And so I knew this and I pointed that out to Mike. I We talked about golf carts, walking, pot bunkers, rumpled fairways, fescue, uh, greens that were at grade that, that just folded up into the landscape. Nothing that's popped up in the air. Uh, the the lack of contrivance, you know, nothing artificial, removing most of the the trees and shrubs that were out there, hiding the irrigation pond, pushing the clubhouse as far inland as it could go. All of these things are counterintuitive to American golf circa 1980, 1990, you know, because golf of that era in America, at which point Joe Wells knows we we're building 500 courses a year in the 90s. They were wall-to-wall -wall cart path, lakes everywhere, babbling brooks, bent grass out the wazoo, and ornamental plantings. I mean, that was that was the template cookie cutter that was being stamped out for a decade. And I was proposing the absolute antithesis of that. And those that had Mike's ear were whispering, this kid's crazy. If you, you're you already in a place that no one's coming and you want to build something that no one wants, why could that possibly work? But yeah. <laughs> we built it. You know, Mike knew he was, you know, he is a super smart guy. So he knew that that's what he wanted. And he, I, I think he also knew that there would be enough people that shared his uh, love of, of golf that they would want to experience that too, if it was truly authentic, regardless of how difficult it was to get there, regardless of what the weather was like when you got there. Uh, if it was truly authentic to that links experience that you get in Scotland and the British Isles, then he felt enough people would come to justify the effort. I don't think any of us had any clue that the numbers would be what they were. I think Mike thought that maybe 10,000 rounds a year would come and play and it might help him cover the costs of maintenance. Uh, and it would be Kaiser's folly. Uh, and, you know, they'd say, great course. Have you ever visited it? Visit it. I never even heard of it. Where is it again? You know, none of us expected what happened. Uh, the, the, it turned out that there was an absolute yearning uh, that American golfers had for nature, for something that was truly natural, that was a complete adventure and exploration of a of a truly dynamic landscape, uh, and playing something that's full. Uh, it doesn't mean golfers don't still like that, but I don't think it it, it speaks to the soul the same way playing something that's truly natural does in a in an amazing landscape that just speaks to a golfer's soul like money will never do no amount of money faking it can ever do that joe do you remember at the time uh when bandon dunes was being announced and before it opened the the sentiment of people is it kind of like what david's describing is like what are, what are they doing out there who who is this coming on board and uh, and why are they doing this now? Yeah, I mean, I remember it very well. Um, they had some preview play uh, where media went to cover the 1998 PGA Championship at Sahali up in Washington State and brought 
brought some guys down there just to see what it was looking like. And I mean, again, this was so remote and, and just nobody, nobody had ever heard of David McClay kid at that point. And so it was just like out there. And then there was like sort of a postcard put out and it like, oh my God, I can't believe this is somewhere in America. And then those first reviewers started to throw some stuff back at us. And then it just, the buzz factor said, okay, and this is going to open for real next year. And uh, sounds like we, we need to get there. Um, and that's exactly what happened. And there was new extra golf quickly announced. Yeah. I, I mean, it was a phenomenon that quickly from zero to 120 miles an hour uh, in a very, very short period of time. Yeah. It's, it's crazy to look back at. And, uh, you know, I remember being uh, in the U S because at that point I was still living in the UK and uh, the 16th hole at Bandon Dunes was the cover of golf magazine. Uh within i don't think the course had even opened or maybe it opened uh within a few months uh and the shock of seeing that uh realizing that that this had really been a real a seismic shift really it was the beginning of a seismic shift and i think that mike and i and others that were involved in it kind of realized for the first time that uh, our passion was shared and, and others felt the same way. How quickly does your life change then? And your, your phone starts ringing with other people saying, you got to come build a course here. <laughs> That's a great question. Cause it's not what you think. Uh, I, I went back to the UK. I had rented a school classroom in a disused school and there was me and I had one employee, a guy called Paul Timber, who's who's still practicing in Scotland. Uh, and I sat there and I looked at the phone for nine months and no one called. And yet Bandon Dunes was in every magazine constantly. I mean, there wasn't a month went by that there wasn't a picture or a story or something. And my name's right there with it. Uh, and in those early days, they didn't talk about Mike Kaiser. He he was rarely mentioned. You know, the magazines gravitated right to me. And there's my name in print and my phone never rang. Golf Digest had an article, which I still have. And it said the next superstar. And it was talking about me. And it was surreal. It was like a third person experience. Like these people do not know that this is all smoke and mirrors. I I'm I was just the dumb kid that didn't screw up. Uh, I am nobody's superstar, and yet there it is written in Golf Digest. But nothing happened for like nine months, and then all of a sudden the phone rang twice in one week, and one phone call turned into Queenwood Golf Club, and the other phone call turned into Nanea Golf Club in Hawaii, and both of those courses. I did pretty much on the heels of Bandon uh, and they were both uh, a wonderful opportunity to try and see if I could live up to the hype, to, to see if I actually had what it took uh, to, to hang and be a professional golf course designer because neither of those sites was Bandon June, especially not Nenea in Hawaii. It was lava on, on the big island. I'd never been to Hawaii. I'd never really seen lava. Uh, so, uh, you know, these were an opportunity to maybe respond to the few that said, well, anyone could have done it. It just happened to be him. So uh, I felt uh, for the first time in my career, and by this time I'm in my early 30s, I actually felt pressure. But there was no pressure building Bandon because it wasn't Bandon. It was a course in, on the edge of nowhere for a guy that nobody knew by a guy that nobody knew. So where was the pressure? Uh, you know, Tom Dope had a little bit of pressure. He was having to live up to the first one. Uh, but I had none. But going into the next couple of projects, suddenly there's all this expectation, all these people saying, you know, well, that's the kid that did Bandon Dunes. Just watch what he can do here. And then me really knowing that my skill set and my level of experience at that point is really, really low. I don't have a whole lot. 
uh, I I got a fast tongue uh, and a and a lot of learning from Scottish greenkeepers and how the hell can I figure out how to actually leverage the success of Bandon and not screw it up and I think that for all of my apparent confidence there was then and I think there really is now a scared kid inside worried that I'm going to get found out. I'm picturing you in that nine months where you're getting all this press and you're like checking your address book like did I get my number right like did I type the number in wrong I don't know if you had a website it's like is everything right here because no one but is, back then, Al, yeah, no. back then, there were no cell phones. The websites weren't really that big a thing. I mean, we're talking the late 90s. Right. It wasn't It wasn't like it is today. It wasn't, you know, this intercommunicated world where you could DM me on my Twitter feed. I mean, none of that existed. <laughs> so I literally had a, a, a phone in my car with the curly cord plugged into the car. I mean, it didn't, I couldn't remove it out of the car. So if someone called my cell phone, I needed to be in the car for, to actually get the call. Uh, and then I had a separate number that was my office number. Well, I had to be in the office or they had to leave a message with a messaging service. I mean, it was, and we had fax machines. So that shitty thermal paper that someone could send me a fax. So, uh, you know, it's, you're too young to remember any of this. It was <laughs> It was a shit show. It was really hard to communicate, you know, for for Fred Green and Chuck Schwab to physically get a hold of me. They had to make real effort. They had to talk to someone to talk to someone who tracked down my father through somebody else who gave them two or three phone numbers and a fax number. I mean, it, it probably took them days to figure out what the, the communication thread was and eventually get a hold of me and for they me to call them back and have a conversation, least of which time zones. I'm in London. These calls are happening from the U.S. West Coast. This episode is presented by Wild Dunes Resort, a resort unlike any other. Wild Dunes offers something for everyone. Award-winning golf, tennis, pickleball, and sparkling pools delicious on-site dining, and memorable outdoor adventures. Located just outside Charleston in beautiful Isle of Palms, South Carolina, Wild Dunes offers 36 holes of signature golf designed by Tom Fazio. The Lynx course was Fazio's first solo design and is still among his favorites today. From the rustling palms lining the rolling fairways to a finishing hole overlooking the glistening Atlantic, the Lynx course is South Carolina golf at its finest. The Harbor Course, another of Fazio's gems known for its challenging design, beautiful views, and most of all, water. From lagoons and salt marshes to the intracoastal waterway, this course will test all aspects of your game. Whether it's an afternoon golf outing or a week-long excursion, you will enjoy every minute of your golf vacation at Wild Dunes Resort. Learn more about Wild Dunes at wilddunes.com. You know, you came, I mean, even though you'd done previous design work, Bandon Dunes was the coming out party. Here's what I do in golf course architecture. When you responded to Fred Green with Queenwood and Chuck Schwab with Nenea and some of your other early clients, did David McClay Kidd have a design style yet or a design philosophy that even though the ground is very different, the setting is different, uh, here's what I want to accomplish here? Or how did you go about those projects knowing you had come out of the gates with this phenomenal success? You know, I'm not sure, Joe, that my design philosophy, in some regards at least, has really changed from the very beginning. You know, my my upbringing was that of a you know son of a scottish greenkeeper my father is a giant golf architectural history nut so being based at glen eagles playing the courses that james braid did going to the other classic courses in scotland and understanding and learning how to play them why they're laid out the way they are why it's taken hundreds of years for them to morph very subtly to what they are uh, i i came to understand what I think I still believe today that you know golf is a game of strategy and the 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 greater the aggressor from a player's point of view the greater the defense from the golf course's point of view 
And I, I've always believed that from the beginning of time till the day I die. I I try not to consider golf courses to be penal. Uh, I try if if you're if you're willing to give up on your aggressive aggressive nature, I'm willing to give you a line. Uh, and the stronger your aggression, the stronger I will defend. Uh, and I've never really changed that. Okay, in some respects, uh, that makes perfect sense from the beginning. Looking what you're doing now to where Bandon Dunes was and is, uh, there did seem to be a point in time. And maybe around uh, 2009, 2010, something like that, where you did have a realization that some of the golf courses that you were producing had some features that made them play pretty difficult. And something struck you. It could have been a project. It could have been the economic downturn. And you sort of rediscovered, uh, if you will, the joy of playability. Do I have that right? And and how did that come about? Well, I think what happened was my my the basic tenant I just described didn't change. I was still defending an attacking golfer, defending against an attacking golfer, not not giving them that line of attack uh, without some defense. What I had lost, and I'm not, you know, I, I have different thoughts on how I'd lost it. Uh, I my thought is. Uh, what happened was I was being told that that these rankings were super important, and the the people I was working for wanted to lean into difficulty, and so I said, "Well, that's the easiest thing in the world. I can make it difficult. Difficult is easy." And so I lent that way for a few projects. You know, uh, the. The Castle course has a hint of that. Macrahanish Dunes even has a hint of it. Tedro here, my home course in Bend, has a hint of that. And when I look at it now a decade or more later, where that where the rubber hit the road was not so much in the level of difficulty for a good player and, and them making attacking decisions hole by hole. It was really about average player and their lack of ability to execute that attack. And then in failing to make it, Abandon when if you choose an attacking line as an you know an average golfer and and you don't make it you don't end up in absolute hell you end up you know wide on the fairway you end up off the green you may end up in a bunker that looks deep but actually the line out of it is fairly shallow and so the ability to rescue yourself from error on classic courses and I would put Bandon right in that group. Is doable. And that's what I had probably forgotten was how important it is for the average golfer when they fail to execute, which is a lot, two thirds of the time, three quarters of the time, that you give them some opportunity to get themselves back in the game. And getting back in the game is, is not some complicated thing about getting back to a scoring position. Getting back in the game means you just don't lose the ball. You you get back to being able to make bogey, hell, maybe even double bogey. But if if you make a mistake and you lose the ball, you're I mean, it's the worst thing in golf. If you're in your pocket halfway down a golf hole, there's nothing worse than that, I think, as a golfer. So I returned to that very strongly in 2012 when I opened Gamble Sands, which you were one of the first ones to play, Joe. You know, I wanted that course to return to what I knew to be true with golf from the British Isles and the golf that I had delivered back to America in bandages. Sure, there are attacking lines, but when you fail, there's a chance to recover. You can miss around the greens. You can miss wide on a fairway. You can miss short of a green, and you're not immediately in your pocket. You're not immediately out of the hole. And especially if you're giving, if you're winning a stroke against your your opponent, that's your opportunity to use that stroke and still stay in the game. Well, I think that's what changed apparently for. Uh... Most players, most critics, your golf courses still wound up getting ranked, um, even without the factor of this is so hard. And yeah, the rankings were 
were guilty of promoting that kind of difficulty because they wanted every hole to be memorable, wanted every hole to be a rip snorter instead of the overall experience, uh, which is what I found at Gamble Sands, which is what I found at Guacalito, uh, which is what, uh, especially at Sand Valley Mammoth Dunes, we're having so much fun here. So much fun. Not only are we not losing any golf balls, but there's like, two, three, four ways to get at the hole that we can take it up high, we can run it along the ground. Um, and and that made it really, really fun. And to heck with all those scratch golfers out there, you know, that that want, you know, that situation where it's got to be an all or nothing proposition. So, you know, I don't know now then in the last, say, five years as you've gotten super busy again uh, has that evolved are we still doing that kind of i mean it's almost cliche to call it user friendly but i mean it was just pure fun to play those golf courses and does it depend on the site the client um as far as what you're doing these days with courses in the last few years well i I think that even though I'm getting to work in a sport, it's an odd sport in that the user, the golfer, is so affected by the visuals of it, the, the landscape that they're playing through. So I don't think there's any doubt at all that golf course architects are part sports field creator, part artist. You know, you're a landscape artist. And if if that's true, and I, I absolutely believe it to be true, then it's also true that if you're not moving forward as an artist, then you're not you're no longer an artist. You're dead, right? You're, you're basically just in production. And there's plenty of golf course architects who've been guilty of just that. They're they're in production. So for us, I'm constantly looking at pushing our art forward. What where where is the space to create something slightly different and I, I think as we as we created uh, Gamble Sands and then on through Mammoth Dunes and Guacalito and other courses over the last decade or so I think we're we're starting to understand that uh, if we can allow the golfer the opportunity to recover uh, and so that ticks the playability and fun box because the Punishment for failure is not a immediate execution. Uh, then that that keeps people in play, and that engenders a a lot of uh, confidence. That's the word I want to use. You know, confidence. If I can give a player confidence off the tee because they are not staring at death, they start to swing really well they're swinging faster they're moving through the ball they're moving their weight and suddenly they're hitting really good golf shots now if i give you that if i put you on a tee and i give you confidence i think what we're starting to understand in our little team is i can get a little more aggressive about your ability to score i can put up a little stronger defense if i'm going to not kill you for failing Right. If I if I'm willing to give you bogey, then I'm willing to make sure birdie is a little more challenging to get to. And, and I think that that's partly happening because our young team are really pretty good golfers. And so I think if you look at what we're building right now uh, in comparison to, say, Mammoth Dunes or Gamble Sands, the first course, you know, pins are a little tighter. Greens are a little smaller. Greenside bunkers were a little deeper. Uh, things are a little more challenging against a scoring ball, uh, but no more challenging against a non-scoring ball, if that makes sense. For sure. For sure. Well, Al, I want to let you ask David about uh, some of the new things uh, that are going on with, uh, with his firm. But I did want to touch on a special place uh, much more special for you than me, but I have loved my visits there over the years. And that is, how did Macrahanish, far Western Scotland, influence you in terms of the fun factor, the creativity, 
And not only that, but the other courses nearby, one of your own designs, Macrohanish Dunes, um, a quirky personal favorite called Dunaverty. Why should Americans who are used to that steady diet of open road courses take the visit to furthest West Scotland to experience the Macrohanish pair and heck, spend an afternoon at Dunaverty? Well, that I mean, you're touching on something I'm super passionate about. You know, I spent my childhood out on the westernmost point of the mainland of Scotland, which is the Mull of Kintyre. And the tip of the Mull of Kintyre has uh, some great golf now. It, it had one old golf course, Macrahanish Golf Club, uh, done by old Tom Morris. Uh, I think he got paid like £60 or something uh, <laughs> back at the turn of the last century uh, to dream it up. And it's it's a bit like old Presswick. You know, it's uh, the courses in Scotland that are the most sort of wild and adventurous, North Berwick, Presswick, Macrahanish. You know, those are probably never on any open rota. They're short and they're ridiculously quirky. You know, you, you stand on some of the greens and you're holding your head in your hands and you're like, how, how could someone possibly have thought this could be a green? Uh, and, you know, I spent my childhood playing Macrahanish Golf Club. And so I realized that the the rules, per se, that, that golf course architects are given here in the U.S., they're, they're not rules. When, when the old books were written, when Mackenzie wrote his little green book, he wasn't writing rules. He was just giving vague rules of thumb, guidance, you know, to a, the completely uninitiated uh, on what his somewhat thoughts are. Uh, and I think somehow they got burnt into American history as more than just a, a guide. They became like overarching rules of golf course architecture. And yet if you took Mackenzie's book, and no doubt one of the greatest architects whoever has lived, if you took them and tried to apply it to, say, Macrohanish Golf Club, you couldn't. You know, the routing's weird. The golf holes are weird. The greens are crazy. You know, there's all sorts of things that wouldn't follow uh, the model of golf in America. And that's, you know, where I think something like, uh, because I didn't have that background of, of parkland golf in America, I wasn't sullied by it. It didn't matter to me. I knew what you could do. I knew that old Macrohanish was much loved and you could build stuff that's blind, totally blind, semi-blind. I mean, it, there's probably every hole at Bandon is semi-blind or blind if you're in the wrong spot in the fairway. Mm -hmm. And yet, conventional American golf, if you go play ho-hum American golf, nothing is ever blind. Everything is right there, right in front of you. Uh, I mean, the first hole at Bandon's blind. So Exactly. And and then how did you apply that? You You were dealt such a difficult set of circumstances when you did Macrohanish Dunes because it was a site of scientific interest and so many restrictions on where you were able to go with things. How how has that evolved over the years for you? When, when we did Macrohanish Dunes, I knew and told everybody involved in the project, we are not really building a golf course. I mean, the restrictions were so tight. And to give you an example, we were not allowed to build uh, fairways or really bunkers we were told we could mow the existing grass Ugh. until we got it short enough to find and play a golf ball we were given a very small area that we could uh, cultivate and put seed down to grow a green and somewhat for the teas and then the bunkers had to be existing scrapes that we were allowed to make into bigger scrapes I mean, so you can see that my explanation to anybody who would listen was we're really not building a golf course. We're taking these very fragile, sensitive dunes. We are laying out a golf course the way that old Tom Morris might have 150 years ago. And then we're allowing the golf course to develop over millennia. And so here we are 15 years later or so from uh, the original Macrohanish Dunes, and now we have pretty much a golf course. Right, the fairways are in good condition. the The golf's in great condition. the 
the routing is quirky as hell, but that's the hand we were dealt. Uh, and I think that over time, Macrahanish, like it will fit perfectly into the the genre that it sits in, that it's quirky and natural and completely as I found it. I don't know that I could really take credit for being the golf course architect. I mean, I I got to decide where the the center point of the hole was, but nature decided everything else. I mean, it really, really did because the grass that you play on is the same grass the sheep were grazing on when I arrived. That's about as natural as it gets. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know of anything else that's like that. A skirmish, right? That might be the only other one that's maybe a bit like that. Yep. Another cult classic. Yeah. Before we get to uh, what you've got going on right now, you mentioned something earlier about artistry uh, in your craft and thought it was interesting. We did a, a Q&A with you. Tony Deere, one of our writers, did a Q&A with you recently, which you can, if you're listening, you can read on our website. And someone commented on it. Uh, what do you think Mike Strands is doing smiling in envy? Question mark. Uh, about about you oh, and your work. I, I wondered oh, if I there was... I love that. God, that gives me chills. You know, I had dinner with Mike Strantz uh, when he started at Monterey Peninsula Country Club. Uh, I mean, that guy was... I, I didn't know him well. I had dinner with him only one time. You know, force of nature. I mean, he, he looked like he should be a country singer. Uh, just amazing talent. His sketch work, incredible. The, the stuff he dreamt up. I, I could only hope that I have even a fraction of that much creativity in my soul. Uh, I, you know, a talent we lost way too early. Imagine what he'd be doing given another 20 or 30 years of, of productive design. Uh, I, I would have loved that. Uh, he, he was a talented, talented man. You know, one of the things that's, I guess is true for all artists is our true worth is not going to be measured until we're dead. And Fair I, enough, I often yeah. remind myself and those around me of that, that, you know, golf course architects are pretty much measured once they're dead. They're, they're not really loved while they're alive. Uh, there, there can still be some controversy. And I rely on that greatest with the castle course. I figure that once I'm dead, uh, hopefully the good stuff we, we've done will be uh, viewed differently once they can't call me up and bitch at me or post it on the internet. <laughs> and, you know, obviously Mike is, he was an artist and a real artist and known for his drawing as well. Um, but is there someone like that, him or, or other architects where you really appreciate or learn from them as as being somewhat of an artistic type of uh builder of golf courses i can't remember which ones which one of the jones brothers said it but at some point in my uh, career i seem to remember reading that one of them said you know uh, someone asked that question and they said you know all the good ones are dead and uh you know you think back to that and you think that you know that's a somewhat flippant answer and somewhat sad answer uh, that in, I think it was Reese Jones, but at that point in his career, at the peak of his power, he felt he had no peers. And, you know, in some regards, that might be cool, but I feel that in my career, I've had an amazing number of peers that have lifted, all of us have lifted our game because of it. You know, if I know that, you know, I'm working in the Sandhills in Nebraska, you know, I'm the last in my genre peer group, I'm probably the last one, right? Bill Coors been there, Tom Doe, Gil Hans, you know, they've all built in those sandhills. I'm kind of the tail end Charlie. I can't build something that's okay, right? I, everything they're building is really, really good. I, not one of them is mailing it in. And so wherever we find ourselves, my peer group are either there or going to be there. And so everybody's game has to be better than it was last week uh, and better than it will be next week when your competitor arrives. And the competition is not cutthroat because we're all busy and doing what we want to do. But the competition is definitely to the benefit of golfers, to the people listening right now. We are desperately keen 
to make sure that we are building golf courses for the ages. Uh, we're desperately keen to be the ones that are living in the next golden age. You know, I, I think we all feel like that. We want to be, you know, the golden age is going to come around once every hundred years. We want to be this century's golden age right now. Maybe it'll last another 30 years, but maybe it'll only last another five. But from Bandon Dunes to whenever, I would like to think that history sets that as a potential second golden age. And I got to live through it. Nothing but timing, just dumb luck. <laughs> so what are you working on right now? I know you're in the Sand Hills uh, building the next course for the Dormy Network and you're you're out in Washington uh, or Nick is uh, building the next course at Gamble Sands. What else do you have going on? Uh, we have the Titleist facility down in Carlsbad all tore up. I uh, was down there last week with Bob Volke building him an outpost all for, all for him. Uh, so that's been super fun, uh, learning about the, the current uh, research and development of clubs and balls and seeing all that stuff. It's not something I've been deeply involved in before. Uh, I, Nick was there earlier this week with Wyndham Clark. So, you know, we're, we're hanging out with, you know, the, the very best players on planet Earth, seeing what they're capable of. That's super interesting. Uh, we just remodeled Rancho Santa Fe, uh, which is uh, Charlie Hoffman and Phil Mickelson's home club. Uh, it's probably one of the few historical renovations that we've done. A uh, course with a troubled history. Uh, if you Google it, you'll see that a lot of the, you know, the golf wonks out there have always uh, kind of railed against the membership and felt that they haven't really embraced their history. And so we had a chance to kind of do that and that's that's been kind of a painful thing for the membership if i was blunt you know i i had to kind of be kind of a uh you know kind of rough on them a couple of times and say hey you guys need to understand what you have here this is a max bear 1927 you know classic golf course that's kind of lost its way and you guys need to uh, step up and be willing to bring this thing back and boy did they you know, the golf course has, uh, I think Max Bear would be really pleased to see it today. I mean, we Nick and I spent a lot of time reading Max Bear's articles in Sports Illustrated and trying to understand them. It's like reading the King James Bible. Uh, he, he's a, a very wordy, articulate writer that is difficult to understand, but I think I got the gist of it. And so we tried to take his, his uh, writings and take what he left behind and try and bring it back to something that he would enjoy. Uh, I think we managed it. In fact, I, I'm so thrilled with it. Uh, you know, I was down there last week, so that was fun. Uh, we're just about to start a project in Austin, Texas. It seems like Austin, Texas is the next one of the next hotspots. So there's lots going on there. We're building a course called Laura Loma right next to uh, Bill and Ben's Aust uh, Austin Golf Club. So there, you could hit a drive from one to the other. They're right next to one another. So that's kind of cool. Uh, I'm out in Portugal in a couple of weeks uh, opening uh, Dunas Golf Club, uh, which is between the Algarve and, and Lisbon, all through Sand Dunes, hard against the Atlantic. So that's pretty cool. So... Yeah, uh, life is really good. We're we're working in sand a lot of the time, or we're working on super cool sites, regardless of sand. COVID was the best thing that ever happened to uh, golf. Not the best thing that ever happened to you if you got it or had it, uh, but uh, it certainly helped the golf business. That's for sure. Everyone rediscovered their old dusty clubs and they're out playing golf. Absolutely, Joe. You got anything else for David? David, uh, are you doing anything new in the Bandon area? We uh, we've been working on potentially what could be the final eighteen hole golf course uh, south of Bandon, uh, and we've been working around that for the last couple of years. Uh, right at the minute, we're working through permitting issues and things like that, so we don't really have a timeline for it. Uh, but it's on the cards and maybe at some point in the future, 
Uh, I might even get to bookend Bandon, at least in Mike's lifetime. I am now older than Mike was when he hired me. Uh, and, you know, there's no room left at Bandon on property to build another full-size 18-hole golf course, as far as I'm aware. And so this one that's a little distant from the resort, it's 30 minutes away, but in amazing sand dunes, could be the last one. Uh, we'll see. Uh, if we get to build it, if things come to pass, that would be cool to do. I'd love the opportunity to do another course with Mike. It would be my third. Uh, so uh, I'm, I feel very spoiled. I, I like Bill Kerr. I hear him say a lot these days, you know, the next generation, the next generation. But Bill's 25 years older than me. So uh, I, I'm all about the next generation too, but I still got ways to go. I want that next generation to be on my team, not competing against me right now. I guess the last one from me will be obviously uh, by the time this comes out, the Ryder Cup will have been played. Uh, the U.S. Amateur was at Bandon Dunes a few years ago for the first time. And there's a, a list of tournaments that's going to be played out at Bandon uh, with the USGA. Uh, what do you think makes Bandon a good match play venue? Um, or is there such thing as a good match play course like that? But what what is what makes Bandon so great for it? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think, you know, match play is all we play in the UK. I mean, nobody's playing stroke play unless it's a club medal that you're getting your handicap on. And even that's gone now with the, the world handicap system. I so my whole entire life, I was playing match play. I don't know. I don't think I wrote the score down on a card more than a dozen times my entire childhood. It was only ever match play. So, you know, what makes a good match play course? I, well, it's so much more fun in match play. I, and it's, you know, so much of that is a mental game that being aggressive is a much better way to play match play. And so if you have a golf course that, demands defensive play it is generally not a good match play golf course if the penalty for failure is losing the hole almost immediately then both players are going to play defensively you know it's like uh what do they call that uh, bike racing where they go round and round and round they're basically barely pedaling you know because they know that once one guy breaks you know he's probably the guy that loses because the guy right behind him is going to pace himself and take him so it's extremely, if the golf course demands defensive play, I would say that it's not generally a good match play golf course. A, a good match play golf course is one where the both players are stepping on the throttle, trying to kill one another with aggressive uh, play. And it's so much more fun to watch that. Uh, so I'm hoping that the course in Italy is a bit more like that and not, you know, lost balls down down deep rough on both sides. That's That leads to defensive play. And then the other thing is the closing holes. You know, match play, just by its very nature, is going to close out matches in the final five, right? I mean, 99% of matches are being closed out in the final five. When I built Bandon, I absolutely knew that. So when you get to the final five at Bandon, it's all make or break. I mean, it, it, the the guy who's playing boldest or gal is likely to be the victor. Uh, when one of the things I've said many times since the U.S. Amateur, I'm pretty confident, arrogant though it may sound, if I'd have been on the bag of any of the last eight, I could have handed them that trophy because they did not. None of the final eight, even Strafacci, who won it. You know, none of them played the, their course management kind of sucked. You know, <laughs> they were not thinking about where pins were, how to get into those pins. You know, the final round, when I saw them both hit driver on 13, I was shouting at the TV. The pin was tucked back right. If you go down the right side of the fairway, there is utterly no way of getting a ball close to that pin on a second shot. But if you were to take driver away from the player, get them to hit a rescue down the left side, they could have hit that rescue again and bounced that ball up to that pin on the left, on the back right corner of that green and had an eagle putt. It would have won the whole every single game in the final eight. And same with 15. They were going for the pin in the back. All he had to do was place the, the, 
ball at the front of that green and two putt and they were one the hole almost every time. So things like that where course management and understanding the course would have made a massive difference. Uh, I think that's the nature of great uh, Ryder Cup type golf. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of, uh, we talked about this, there's a couple of holes in the Ryder Cup uh, host list and they're both in Europe. Where is a course, what is a course you would like to see host the Ryder Cup in Europe? The obvious answer to both Joe and I seem to be the old course of St. Andrews, but maybe another one that someone may not first think of. Where would you like to see a Ryder Cup go? The one that jumps right to my mind is Kingsbarns. Kingsbarns would be a phenomenal Ryder Cup. You know, the, the old course is a great course, but it sucks to be a spectator at the old course. You can't see anything. You know, if you're the second guy back, you don't see a thing. And unless you're in bleachers, and, you know, the bleachers, for those that have never been to St. Andrews in the old course, weather might not be great and you can't leave that bleacher. So you're in there from seven in the morning till the last game goes through and you better not need to pee. Because uh, if you leave, you're not coming back. So, you know, Kings Barnes, uh, you know, Kyle Phillips and Mark Parson did such an amazing job with that. And, you know, it's set up for spectators. There's there's mounds everywhere. You The golf holes are phenomenal. I mean, just a riot. So if I had my druthers, I think Kings Barnes is probably the greatest course that will never host a Ryder Cup. Next to Bandon. There you go. <laughs> I love that answer. Joe, anything else before we let David go? I'm good. All right. Well, we really appreciate the time today. It's been fun to talk to you well, and uh, do it again soon. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate the, the chance to sit here and espouse. Anytime. We, we'll do it again. Anytime.